But who's stepping up to assume the task? Euro 92, one day at a time. I'm Rob Murphy. Day four is not the prettiest of days. Two games, not a whole lot of action. One goal. We've given Colin Sheridan the night off, otherwise he would have quit. Mick Foley, how are you? Rob, I'll be honest, I'm rattled. I'm rattled. Those games, those games took it out of me. Those games brought me back to a place I didn't want to go, which was Italian 90. Like, just the... You, you well, nearly, I nearly, I tell you, I, I nearly went down to the local church to light, some, to light some candles during the game, just in the hope that they might imagine a goal from the depths of history. They might just, you know, it might just work. It's horrendous. Horrendous. Makes me feeling the aftershock of Cagliari. Oh. <laughs> yeah, it's only hitting me now. Kieran. It's just, look, it's one of those, we've watched these games, so you don't have to. 30 years ago today, these games took place and we were daft enough to try and watch them again. Kieran O'Hara is one of the people who did so. How are you? Kieran? I'm regretting it. I can't lie. <laughs> Uh, I was looking at this going yes. nil nil draw surely to God this was Colin Sheridan's turn <laughs> yeah, we, we, we let him off Billy Joe Padden you got the job of watching the mighty England against the mighty France this was meant to be a classic it wasn't it, it wasn't and I, I had the difficulty or the roulette the roulette of watching it and I think I had Martin Tyler for about 30 seconds and then I had flipping Vladimir from Vladivostok for the rest of it <laughs> was it not um, Brian Moore <laughs> <laughs> I, I no, I, I'm pretty sure that it was Martin Tyler. Every and it really like it, it sparked me back in because it, maybe every twenty minutes he'd come back in for thirty seconds and yeah, and I'd get an interesting anecdote about what happened at the French training session the night before the game. So I got that much that Papin stormed off in typical French flair. I think that was more entertaining <laughs> than that and happened on the field. Uh, but Did but I will say when the when the Russian guy kicked back in at one when the Russian guy kicked back in at one stage, oh, I said I can't deal with this anymore. So I turned on the television. What came on on the television? Allo allo. I said these things can only get <laughs> Good could, morning. Could it have been Barry Davies? It could have no. been. It could have been. Now I was pretty sure because because the, there was no. two commentaries no, no. done for for English television. One was one was the ITV commentary, which was the live game, and the other was for the highlights for BBC, which was Barry Davies. Now, I'm going to jump in here now because I, I I know I'm at the risk here of breaking the fourth wall for the people who just think that this is just magic how they do this. How do they get these games? How does it work? It's just incredible what they do. Is it, are they just doing it from memory? Maybe it's memory they're doing it from. What we watched, I think we all watched the same feed. It was actually Australian TV, right? It started with Australian TV. Martin Tyler, yet to be anointed the voice of football. That was yet to come. He was... Doing the gig, I presume he was freelancing for one, for a better expression. He was he was probably just doing it for a load of places. But it was Australian TV, and as Billy Joe said, you'd have Martin for a little while, and then suddenly it would break into Vladimir, and again, you had the whole mess of pronunciations. Laurent Blanc, Dick Damp. Oh, and the best, and the one that really got me was Jocelyn Anglomach became Anglomach, Anglomach. It reminded me of those. Remember those? Do you remember those public service ads in the early eighties, late seventies? For like, I was at measles, measles, mumps, and rubella, and you had a nun screaming into a child's ear. Bah! It was like that. Bah! Anglo ma, Anglo ma. 
Oh, Jesus. But it, Matt, you're right. But Billy Joe, what's the kind of thing though? When Martin Tyler came in, it was brilliant because he had all these stories. I tell you what, it was the best commentary by Martin Tyler I've ever heard. And it was only about two and a half minutes in the whole thing. Well, me, as you know, lads, I'm a fanatical Liverpool fan. I'm never giving out about Martin Tyler ever again. Never, never, because no, it was no. he got me through change, ninety man. minutes of oh he he just he just kept me there for 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 every every just when I'd lose the will to live he'd click back in. Actually, before we go into the game, because we need to frame this mm. in terms of England and France and where they're at, can you tell that story, Billy Joel, that he told about Papin at the training the day before? Because I think that's actually very important in the context of where France are at. Do you remember this? Do you remember the story he told about? Well, about yeah, Papin yeah. Training well, his well, when Vladimir, when Vladimir cut off, and I'm not the greatest linguist, when Vladimir, uh, you know, uh, checked out and Martin checked in, Martin was talking about watching um, the training session the night before from the po- from the point of view of Platini surveying his troops before before the big game, and he described how. One of the French players didn't know who it was at this stage, couldn't basically hit a barn door. Everything he kicked was going wide and he started doing shooting practice and everything was going wide and hands and were being thrown in the air in flamboyant fashion and then just had enough. Stormed off to the dressing room and everyone just looked at him and Platini says nothing. And it was only then did Martin, because I, we'd only checked back in, tell us that that was your star striker, Jean-Pierre Papin, and that... Platini didn't even flinch. And the France went on to train for another 30 minutes after that. And no one said anything to Papin for his, I suppose, petulance. I think what we're seeing there is, is what is unfolds in the game, which is the slow disintegration of France. Like we've seen it in the first game that, you know, they, they play well enough. But for this game, they make a bunch of changes. Um, they play really, really badly. They get dragged into this swamp of a game against England, who are already down to the bare bones. Uh, look, we were all well aware of the of the sort of you know, the pressure that Graham Taylor was under, the pressure that the team was under, the savaging that was going on at home. Um, but from the French perspective, it's really interesting. These are the guys who were the favourites before the tournament. These are the guys who won nineteen games in a row, historic winning run for France, and they're falling apart now in the second game of the Euros. I think that Papin story, you can just. You can feel it, you know. You've, we've 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 seen this before with France, you know. It's starting to come apart at the seams, and it absolutely just falls asunder in this game for them. I think, in terms of, in terms certainly in terms of winning the tournament. Brilliant first game of the day. He owes England one of these, Brian. He hasn't, to my memory, he hasn't scored too many of these for England. Come on, Stuart. Now's the time to deliver it. Pierce for England. Oh, against the crossbar. He claims it went over the line, but the referee won't have that one. Pierce went away to the referee, raising his arms, but it just wouldn't go in for England. A fantastic free kick again by Stuart Pierce. I just want to say, Rob, that if Stuart, if Stuart Pierce was telling me while waving his hands and arms rather angrily at me uh, that, that that was a goal, I'd, I'd award the goal. Okay, uh, I'm not going to muck about with Psycho Pierce. <laughs> Mick, I was just I was reading uh, Colin Gibson in Malmo uh, for the Irish Independent, but for plenty of other papers too. I'm sure England thought they were unlucky. The French claimed the victory, but maybe the supporters' view 
that they were shortchanged was the most realistic one in a contest short of sportsmanship and desperately short of incident. The European Championship was devalued by a match that died of fright. Jesus, he enjoyed that. He really enjoyed that far too much. Uh, devoid of incident? I don't think so. The incident that, uh, or sorry, the episode, I should say, that Kieran just described there, which your Pierce running towards the linesman. Let's not forget there was also blood gushing from his cheek as he did so, which is, again, another reason why you'd give him the goal. Just go away from me, you you insane person. Like, he had just gotten absolutely nutted, and I mean nutted with extreme prejudice, by Basil Bowley about three minutes before. Um, that, That wasn't really spotted, but with more of that and on anyway, but it was a terrible terrible game um like i said earlier there about france you you just they just got dragged into this swamp of nothingness um like they made changes why they made changes the only theory i can come up with really as to why france played the way they did or allowed themselves to get dragged into this thing was because they lost this famous unbeaten run to england in wembley the previous february and there was a conversation around the preamble to this game that to, to borrow a Greavesyism. Um, they didn't like it up them, and they wouldn't be able to uh, cope with the English pressure game and you know, all this kind of stuff, right? And I can only think that they bought into it a bit because, like, and keep in mind, England England played a sweeper system this time. They were down to the absolute bare bones of their squad, really, really down to the bare bones. So they were coming in, really just wanting to kick the ball out, hope that they get something off a break or a free kick or something or a corner. And so it was all there for France to play play the football and win the game. But they completely and utterly disintegrated in the face of what you'd have to say wasn't exactly arduous pressure uh, of playing this particular England team at this particular time. Just fell completely apart. I have to say, and maybe Billy Joe will, will be able to give me some idea of what Graham Taylor was thinking. But when I think of Des Walker, I think of a footballing centre-back. Am I right here? Surely yeah, that's who absolutely. you go to when you want to play a sweeper. So, Billy Joe, how can you explain why he chose Carlton Palmer? Well, there there is great difficulty in explaining that. But I suppose you have to put it into the context of what Graham Taylor... Yeah, what was his uh, go-to modus operandi as a football manager? And he, you know, not to go all Jonathan Wilson and, and basically quote many of the analysis he's done in his great books, in that he was a disciple of Charles Hughes, who I think was the FA uh, coach and director or whatever title he had, uh, you know, in the 70s, maybe even into the 80s as well. And basically he developed this, I suppose, position of maximum opportunity was an area in the 18-yard box and around it and that, following his analysis, that you're more likely to score in three passes or less. So the idea being that you get the ball into that area as quickly as you possibly can, and therefore you have to go along. So I suppose when you think of a Graham Taylor England team, you think they're going to do that. But I suppose to totally demoralise me when I was started to watch the game, I... You know, you're going through as the, as pans, the camera pans along the, the team during the national anthems. And you just go through them one by one. And it's just like Martin Keown, a British bulldog, <laughs> Stuart Pierce, another British bulldog. <laughs> Des Walker it was a bit of a Rolls Royce of a footballer. You know, I'll give that. David Batty, you know, I don't need, you know, it, it speaks for itself. Carton Palmer, <laughs> well, I don't know what he was, really, Carton Palmer. And then you have 
the three players that kind of morphed into one, David, Andy, Stephen. You know, all three of them there. <laughs> and, you mean, you mean Trevor I, Sinton? Yeah, Trevor Sinton. Oh, but now, I know I'm being totally unfair to David Platt here because David Platt was a footballer that I liked. My oh, brother was terrific, a Villa fan. Terrific. And then my love of all Italian football. And if you, and Des Walker, this is where he gets his credit, is because he played in Italy, he must have been good. So that elevates the two of them uh, outside of any of the young, other English squad. And in all fairness to Lindeker and Shearer, great strikers. But, you know, you have to have service. You have to have people to play the ball and pass it around. But what I suppose what hurt me the most or disappointed me the most from the whole experience of watching the game, and it was particularly evident after, you know, the first 30 minutes was that, you know, you could remember some good players on the French team, but they were totally bereft of any football and uh, quality as well throughout that 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 game but the the inexplicable Michael, thing for France no. sorry Michael is is they had two changes that are made to the team like if you were to pick out two standout players from their first game you were talking about Jocelyn Anglima and Vyarua and that's the two changes they make it's utterly inexplicable that you would drop those two players Eric Canton is injured for this game and gets completely marked out of it by Martin Keown and, and I don't mean that just in a sort of a descriptive way. Actually, physically marked out of it. But but does um, have time to put the hands on the hips when, when he's when he's un- unhappy. Oh, of course. Of course. And have a look around and sort of go, how how can I possibly un- be on a field with Trevor Sinton? It's, and, it's, like, you know, he, it's like he's standing and, on one of those... And Carton Betty. He's, he's standing on one of those cake cake things, you know, that twirl cakes around in a shop window. <laughs> I, I I have to say though I, I I'm going to go into bat for Carlton Palmer here, right? I'm going to go into bat for Carlton Palmer as one of those people for years. If I could remember anything about your '92 and the Graham Taylor years, it was like why Carlton Palmer? Why why like he seemed to kind of epitomise everything kind of a bit off about the Graham Taylor era with England. But I was impressed with him in the first game, and he played sweeper in this game. The, the, I think, and I refer here. To my to my shoot magazines on this one, Carlton was kind enough to explain why he was picked as a sweeper, why he thought he started his career as a centre half with Sheffield Wednesday back in the eighties under Ron Ack- or was it Ron Atkinson in the eighties, Howard Wilkinson. No, Howard Wilkinson anyway, wasn't um, it in the eighties. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, his early day, his early years was a centre half. Um, he played one single game for England B as a sweeper. And Graham Taylor was highly impressed with this carry on from Carlton. So when <laughs> I can imagine Graham, if you remember the story about Mark Wright, Mark Wright, of course, being the most natural sweeper. In fact, the only sweeper England had. You might remember the story from a couple of episodes ago of Mark Wright not turning up at the airport uh, because he had aggravated an injury on a tour to Finland before the tournament. But nobody knew that Mark Wright was tur- wasn't turning up, especially Graham Taylor above all. I can imagine Graham on the flight up to Sweden going, I'm sure I'll be grand sure I've got Carlton Palmer. So like, but you know, I'm going to, I don't know, I, I get the feeling I'm going to get shouted down here, but I actually thought he played quite well. After the first five minutes where he seemed to think he needed to come out from sweeper and head everything and challenge for everything. But he, he, thought, he, you know, he found he, how to play. He did inadvertently create France's best chance of the game in that <laughs> Didier Deschamps has a shot. Um, now, and all you can hear is this explosion. It's it's like the ball has hit Carlton Palmer <laughs> and actually deflated midair. But it does kind of ricochet farther on 
and maybe another knockdown later, it's Papan gets a gets a shot off. But at the time, you were literally going, "Has he burst the ball?" He <laughs> <laughs> was all angles that lad. No, uh, look, I think it's. I, I think I, I can't disagree with you. I, I, I think in, in many, it's it's hard to find fault with. A lot of the defensive players for both teams, you know, they were, you know, generally like, and even Chris Woods made. I think he makes a good save or two. Yeah, actually, Chris Woods made a very good save. Yeah, there's a sensa- He make he makes a sensational save early on from is it Papa in the first fifteen minutes? That's really the big chance. Uh, he makes a brilliant save. Yeah, uh, so so it's just it's just. I think it's I think it's it's, it's absolutely clear in that you know we went through this whole thing with Italian ninety and we just admired Safit Susic. You know, my personal favourite Enzo, Shifo, you know, there's a whole load of playmakers there where you're watching this and you're just... You know, oh, you, I see you, where you're, you're going. Carlton Palmer's coming into the, the realm of the great number 10s. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> if they'd only moved him further up the field and he could have found some... <laughs> they found a half space there to take the ball on the half turn. And then it's all about the weight of pass. The weight of pass. <laughs> Who had Carlton Palmer to be the player Billy Joe picked out uh, for that uh, category? We interrupt this show to tell our listeners about a special offer. If you're a coach or just a sports science enthusiast, you'll love this. For a limited time only, you can get 40% discount off the price of DD Sports Science membership. They're an online CBD service for coaches and sports scientists. Real good opportunity. When you sign up, just use the discount code EURO92. That's EURO all caps, 92. Listeners of our show get a special discounted offer. Go to at Dealy Sport on Twitter to find out more. That's at Dealy Sport, D E E L Y Sport on Twitter. Lads, there's there's some incidents in this game, um, and I just wanted to say because we I was looking in the Irish Independent, there was another line here which I have to read to you. This could be Mick. You can take this first of all. This could be the first ever case of like VAR. ITV will send you a video film of the incident in which England's Stuart Pearce was headbutted by Basil Bowley of France in Malmo yesterday. Uh, yeah, video film, I should say, being sent to UEFA by ITV. Nick. Yeah, I know. And it, it was a real, a genuine and extremely violent headbutt. Like, I, I know the lads were saying you didn't see it on the feed. I know, Billy Joe, did you see it on, we saw the same feed. Like, it, you have to watch Bowley. So what happens basically is there's a corner with about 13 minutes to go. It's it's like a charging and bull. Essentially. Like he comes at him low and hits up. Well, yeah, but the, the, the kind of, if you want, the, the, the violent genius in it and the kind of, the calculation here, the calculation that you can see happening is, as the corner occurs, the ball just goes high and wide and everybody's watching the ball just going wide. As you do, just following the ball. Bully sees his opportunity absolutely nails Pierce on the cheekbone. Absolutely nails him. And you can see it on the feed, but you have to watch Bo Lee because he he's only got one, he's only got one thing in mind, like, and he absolutely nails him. Now, I've gone back and I found some stuff from Stuart Pierce about this. And Stuart Pierce's um, recollection of it is, it's, it's good. Uh, first of all, explaining why he fell down wasn't that at heart, lads, right? Wasn't that at heart? I just, just got such a fright. <laughs> it couldn't like, have hurt. I got hurt, Stuart Pierce. I got exactly, exactly. Uh, so he he says here he says um, 
And so I've gone down, maybe out of shock. It definitely wasn't the blow that put me to the floor. It was more, hang on a minute. So that's, that's Stuart's explanation for going down, rather than the incredibly violent headbutt he's just gotten nailed with, right? Second thing that happens is, Bully has fled the scene so quickly that everybody thinks it's Jocelyn Anglema has done it. So he's, Jocelyn Anglema is surrounded in the box. Uh, but of course, it's not Anglema. So they, uh, oh, it goes away. Pierce's explanation as to why he was nailed was that he says, well, I, I've, I've done the winger. I've done the winger a little bit beforehand. So I kind of went back and, because uh, I'll be honest with you, I was waiting for the headbutt all game, right? Once the game, once I realized the game was rubbish, I was just waiting for the headbutt. So I was watching every single foul going, where does this start? Right? Because it just doesn't come out of nowhere. So about, about 12 minutes, 11 minutes before, the game just goes to pot, right? Stuart Pierce, about, sorry, about 15 minutes before, Stuart Pierce absolutely cuts Angleman too, like really cuts him in two. Then the next thing happens, Batty nails Fernandez, Des Walker gets Papa, um, Deshaun starts running around kicking lads. It starts to, it's just kind of starts to unspool the whole game. Um, but he gets, the, so he gets the hit, but Pierce then in the post-match and all the rest of it, um, Pierce doesn't, Nail Bowley. He doesn't say. People are asking, "Did you get? Did, did you? Who who did it?" And he's going, "Ah, oh, look. What, basically, what 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 happens on the field stays on the field." He says, "No, it was an innocent clash of clash of heads." Uh, and again, reverting to what Pierce said, because common sense told me that if I said it was deliberate, then the first thing they would have done was dig out all the footage of me over the years, and I'd be crucified. <laughs> uh, he goes on to say that Bowley actually faxed Pierce at the hotel after the game where they were staying and said, thanks for your sportsmanship because he realized, I'm quoting Pierce again, because he realized that I'd made a meal of it because if I'd made a meal of it, he'd be in the shit. But I'm of the philosophy that whatever happens on the football pitch stays there. That's the way I've always lived my life and the way I've played the game. And no, I've never met him since. There we go. That's your Pierce's take. By the way, Basil Bowley in the post-match didn't deny that it occurred either. He actually made the point that Pierce had nailed Anglima and Luis Fernandez before that, i.e. he had it coming. At, <laughs> at full time, Anglima actually goes over to, you can see him saying to Pierce, is your cheek okay? You can see him gesturing. <laughs> and then Amaros comes in and literally touches the cheek, all okay? <laughs> but the commentary is actually saying, just to be very clear, it wasn't Anglima that headbutted him, it was Bowley. Now, that's just one yeah. of a number of violent incidents in this match. There was one earlier in the game, you referenced David Batty got Fernandez. That's retribution. Much earlier in the mm -hmm. game, Fernandez had put a two-footed tackle into David Batty. To use common parlance, he broke him up. <laughs> and I mean, it would be a straight red in any other era of football. But I think because Fernandez comes out of it worse off than Batty, the referee probably just kind of goes, ah, not even a yellow there, is it really? I mean, Fernandez is such an oddity in this game. He looks absolutely wrecked all the way wrecked. through. He's got shorts on that could have been worn by Jules Fontaine in the 50s. They're enormous. And you're just waiting for him. Every time he seems to get up off the ground, you're like, oh, you're waiting for him to ask Platini for a Galois or something. You know, just have a little smoke. Just give me a second, boss. I'll be fine. You Lads, before we bring this... This uh, stunning game of uh, incredible football to an end. Is there anything else you want to add on it? Because it, the stories spilled out onto the streets that evening, so we can't really move oh. on to the Swedish game. 
But uh, yeah, any- I, I think one of the issues here, Rob, is this is very early in the day. This game, like the, the, you know, you know how you hear people saying, "Don't put a match on too early because the fans will be going crazy all evening." This was like four o'clock in the afternoon in Malmo. So they're out on the streets by six. They're hitting the beer tent in the main square. This is a recipe for disaster. This was the third night of violence, actually. Front page of the Daily Mail. Riot police went into action against British soccer fans again early today as England faced a second humiliating ban from European football. So they were all talking about possible bans. That's the serious There was talk about them losing Euro uh, 96 because they had been chosen to host yeah. the next wow. Euros. So there was talk about them losing it. At that point... Yeah, I mean, recipe for disaster, Mick. Yeah, yeah, it was. I mean, the Swedes had an idea um, that they put into operation for this, that they would have uh, like these beer tents, tented areas, where they would serve cheap but very weak beer that they thought might placate the English fans. But, I mean, it doesn't work that way. And this this particular... <laughs> cheap I mean, but very laughing. weak beer, what is this? Skull zero zero. <laughs> <laughs> I know. It's absolute but lads, it's absolute carnage. And I will share the footage on the old on the old socials um today. There is footage from the ITN um news feed from Malmo that night, and it is extremely violent. Like you have it starts the, the whole thing starts with two lads jump up on top of this beer tent that we're talking about in the middle of Malmo. Um and the riot police move in. And it seems that this has been choreographed. So the two guys up on top of the beer tent are there to draw the riot police in. When the riot police come in, a mob of 60 turns into a mob of 200 and they absolutely rout the riot police. They then go on a complete rampage. Um, one of the incidents that's happened, that, that happens, which caught my eye for obvious reasons, I suppose, was the ITN cameraman who was in the middle of all of this gets the camera, he gets assaulted. They take the camera, they smash it. The ITN, the ITN news feed switches to a home video that's been eyewitness footage that's been shot from uh, an apartment block above them all. And you can see them smashing up the thing, kicking the daylights out of the, out of the cameraman, and then running off with the, with the remnants of the camera and throwing it through a shop window. And this is kind of standard. Like, the footage is actually really raw. Uh, really, really raw. Um, they said at the time that uh, it was prompted or choreographed in some way by a Norwegian neo-Nazi group called the Aryan Brotherhood. They were there. There is a whistle. You can hear a whistle being blown um, when those riot police move in. It's like they wanted they wanted to, this is go time, you know? Um, yeah, absolute chaos. Um, 100 arrests, whatever, mounted police officers, dog patrols, the whole lot. It's just, it's unbelievable. It's absolutely unbelievable. And Kieran, actually, like you, you've been in Malmo, you know Malmo. So can you, can yeah. you be our eyes? Like, like Malmo and, is and Malmo is what's uh, Malmo like? Malmo is not a city where you expect to see this type of behaviour. Like it's, it's on the coast. It's in the south of the country, so it's warmer than most places. So you tend to get a lot of tourists. The squares, you've got these this big city square where everybody goes, cafes, pizzerias, you know, it's what you would expect in a regional city like this. Malmo's not a big city, it's about the size of Belfast, I'd say. And then it's got a wider region. Um but like bars don't stay open late in the city. It's it's not a city that you'd associate with nightlife. So I'd say this is they're not ready for English soccer fans who are getting very pissed off at the fact that the beer is weak and that they're it's going to run yeah. out at about 10 or half 10 that night. Yeah. Like, 
at one stage there's a little shot there's just a very brief shot of yeah. I think there's a family get caught up in it you can see a buggy in the middle of it all it's no. terrifying very wrong it, a different era but a, an era where they UEFA and FIFA had felt like they had dealt with a lot of the worst of English hooliganism uh, obviously Kieran, you've mentioned Euro 96 has been awarded a lot of uncertainty to follow and then on the field, the football team not going very well. Depressing times. Before we leave this game, final thoughts on it, lads? Let's go around. Biddy Joe? Um, look, it's a very disappointing performance from both teams that we obviously expected more of. Uh, if I can add anything different other than I feel bad about being given out about Carl Palmer. I, what I will say is now, he had a lovely pair of Mizuno boots on him and anyone that wore Mizuno <laughs> goes up in my estimation. So he gets a lot on that. boot fetish. Kieran. Yeah, as Kieran rightly pointed out, as Kieran rightly pointed out, uh, your man Fernandez's shorts were massive. Now, I wasn't putting that down to him trying to hide his huge backside in terms of not being fit anymore as he approached <laughs> his mid thirties or whatever age he was. And I was trying to make a connection there between you know the evolution of kit types because France with Cantona as debonair as he was, you know, model. He wore his shirt out at complete contrast to everyone else on the field. The English shorts were very much like something. You know, Ben Johnson would have wore in Seoul '88. They were that. They know, were high, runner like shorts, yeah. shorts. Yeah, and and a tight cuff around this arm, whereas the the French Adidas kit was much looser, and the shorts were shorts were longer. I suppose that that's probably signified the change in terms of kit styles to 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 hark back to I suppose the '50s and '40s with the loose shirts and, and long shorts. But yeah, that's. <laughs> I found that more interesting than the game. <laughs> Two things struck me as final thoughts. I mean, number one, the fact that Alan Shearer started this game. Um, they dropped uh, Alan Smith and brought in Alan Shearer. It's kind of the first time. I mean, okay, he's shooting the lights out for uh, for uh, Southampton. And I think he actually scored his first England goal against France that previous springtime. But he I, he spent an awful lot of time in his own half, I thought. You know, he, he really was... It was a very strange kind of game for him. I, he had one chance that he didn't get. Lineker looks like he's going over. The other thing, the other thing that we can't step away without just checking on the unraveling of Graham Taylor that's going on. We've already touched on it after the Denmark game, but it really starts to happen now. Like his reaction to this game is that we're a bit unhappy not to have won. He says we've come up against a French team that have set out their stall and come for a draw and we haven't been able to break them down. But from a tactical point of view, England showed we can perform at the highest level. This is delusion now of the highest order. You can see now where Dunphy and the British media are, you know, there's actually a reason here why. I mean, this is just complete delusion. He has a meltdown on BBC with Des Lynham. Uh, Was it around the same time, Kieran? Was it the same, same time? No, it was. It was after this game. It was over a question, questions Des Lynham had put to Gary Lineker that he felt were unfair. Well, I don't want to dwell on it too long, but like I've managed to find the quotes from, from his conversation with Des Lynham. And he has a right go at Jimmy Hill, the analyst who was there at the time, because Jimmy Hill had said in the previous game, after the previous game, that these were basically overpaid footballers showing that they were not masters of their own trade. So... Taylor just goes off on one. He's like, these are young men and they feel the hostility at times surrounding them. They're asked to go out there and perform and unless they get a result, they're crucified and I get crucified. Uh, then people wonder uh, why you can't play or why the result becomes the be all and end all. We've tried to progress in a system that is too 
lousy even to try to reproduce some tactical rethinking. You do what you can do. You make the best of, of what you've got with the players knowing as you're all you're likely to do is get a barrel load of criticism. And he goes on. I keep in mind that Graham Taylor is the son of a journalist. So he knows he should know better, really, than to try and start this kind of a war on television. He gets it. He has a go at Jimmy Hill. Then Jimmy Hill, of course, famously being in the vanguard of getting rid of the minimum wage decades beforehand. And at this time is a club chairman. So he starts having to go at Jimmy Hill about, well, if they're overpaid, well, you're part. Are you part of the problem or what are you trying to do about it? Basically, and trying to sort of goes on about the Premier League. Um, they would the Premier League was going to reduce the first division by two teams and going on about the problems of having 22 teams in the old first division for England managers. It's ran, it's crazy stuff, crazy stuff. And all it's doing is just, ref just reflecting again on that sense that Taylor seems to be constantly trying to explain himself to the media, spending far too much time concentrating on that and possibly even taking on board the criticism a bit too much and making changes that maybe don't need to be made. And... It's all coming down now to the Swedish game. And the two things I want to pick up on, one following on from uh, Mick's point, which is Carlton Palmer launched an attack on Jimmy Hill in the aftermath of this game, where he said, <sighs> and I quote, we're not here to be pretty or to entertain. We're here to do a job. So I just wonder... Were they trying to create a siege mentality? Were they trying to create an antagonist and that antagonist was given a name and a voice in Jimmy Hill, you know, in order to try and get something from them? I wonder, is that what maybe Graham Taylor was trying to do within the England camp? When you consider all the injuries, like all the narrative at the start of the commentary on this game was basically that they'd had to pick this team from the English third division. They were so bereft of any fit players. <laughs> that. The final thing I want to say, though, is, and I don't think we will ever see this in another game of football, Martin Keown had a bicycle kick in the opposing <laughs> team's penalty area, <laughs> which he used to put the ball closer to the corner flag. <laughs> oh, if that wasn't worth going back to watch 90 minutes, well, actually, it probably wasn't but let's not go there. All right, time to move on. England and France have another outing in this competition. Sweden and Denmark, their tournaments were only getting going. Jensen hounded by Turn. Darlin involved. Turn. Lovely ball. Martin Darlin, his fleet of foot. Schwarz getting into the centre. And Brolin! 13 minutes into the second half. And the golden boy of Swedish football has provided a golden moment for the host nation. Look at Darlene looking up for himself to see what was on in the centre. And I'm sure his main target was the man from midfield, Stefan Schwarz. But it rolled on right into the stride, onto the foot of Brolin. And next stop, back of the net. That is Absolutely wonderful commentary, isn't it, Kieran? Sure is, but fails to notice that the final pass came from a Dane. <laughs> no, fair enough. Technical. Don't don't ruin what sounded so beautiful. No one needs to know that. <laughs> no, no, seriously, like it's actually a great move because you know, and you can hear it in that commentary. Jonas Tern and Martin Dallin work together to get the ball from John Jensen, and it's just this deft little flick from Dallin opens half the field up to him to run onto the ball. From the second he gets that ball ahead of him, you're thinking, goal on, goal on. 
even though Denmark get, I think, four or five back around Stefan Schwartz. And that's ultimately what happens. They've got the bodies around Schwartz when the ball is centred. And from there, it kind of ricochets out towards Brolin, who finishes with a great finish. And I think Schmeichel actually did get down the right side, so he really had to be on the money with his shot. Yeah, it was a great finish. It was right in the corner. Like, it was so instinctive off the outside of his boot. He kind of just pushes it into the corner, into the one place where Michael can't get to it. And Mick, like, this is the story of Sweden continuing their momentum from the French game, where they brought all the energy. And obviously, in this case, getting the results anyways, even if the, if the contest wasn't a thriller. And Denmark, like, reaching an absolute low in the tournament. It definitely gets better from here. Well... If you were looking, if you were, you know, if you rewind yourself as we're trying to do and put yourself back in that in that situation in 1992, that evening, it's the second game of the day. So you've seen England, France already. You've, now you see Sweden, Denmark. If you're looking for a dark horse in this tournament, it's Sweden. It is not Denmark. And by the end of today, Denmark were bottom of this group at one point, And you're thinking, yeah, they're going to play France next. France will surely get something together because there's nothing going on with Denmark. Um, it's just not... They're there, but they're not really offering much. And I mean, I suppose you have to put it this particular match in the context of it being such a local rivalry as well. It's the biggest game that Denmark and Sweden have ever played. And they, they have played quite regularly. They have the Nordic Cup, which has been going for many, many, many years at that point. They play most years. And so, it's, so there's an awful lot riding on this. There's so much riding on this. But the Swedes play... Sorry, let me rephrase that. I was going to say the Swedes play all the football. They don't play all the football, but they just, they're just they just more progressive and they're more constructive and they've just got better players on the night and they seem to handle the pressure better. We have our first sighting of Martin Dallin and Thomas Brolin together uh, in the team. Dallin come, has come in for Kenneth Anderson from the first game. And they... I don't know what you lads thought. I, I thought initially they seemed like they were two separate strikers, but as the game went on, they started to link up a bit, little bit more. I definitely thought I was impressed by Dali, and I suppose I remember him from his time at Blackburn Rovers and that. But he looked so sharp and direct, and sometimes yeah, he, he just looked—he just looked sharp, you know. He just and he had a couple opportunities in the first half where he's you know moving quickly, quickly onto things, and, and then as Kieran points out there, the way he, he opened it, opened that uh, pitch up there for the for the goal, where he instantly knew there was going to be a chance created here. But I think in some respects, you think back to. Those two players playing for Sweden. It's about nearly youthful exuberance, more so than anything else, and enthusiasm, and 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 just being trying to trying to make something happen. And I think I I thought Dallin had a had a good game, and probably was uh, I I thought he was the better of the two on the day, even though Brolin gets the goal. I'd have to agree. I thought that he had a chance in the first half that Limpar set up for him as well, and you were just kind of going, "He looks like he's the guy that's going to get the goal tonight." Um. But they're so much more energetic than Denmark. And a good part of that has to be the crowd. Like, there's a great atmosphere at this game. Again, for the second Sweden game in the tournament, the fans are playing their part in this. It's interesting to note as well that the fans are, are mingled. There, there's no, there seems to be very little segregation. No conscious segregation anyway. Probably just in the blocks of tickets are sold. But there's lots and lots of Danes and Swedes Standing and sitting alongside each other, getting you know, getting into the night. You know, it it makes for a really, really good atmosphere. And again, less than thirty thousand people in the stadium, but it's the place is rocking. Um, and as you say, Kieran, it's the, it's the energy that Sweden bring. 
And on the night compared to Denmark, there's just that, there's so much more quality about them. Jonas Tern uh, comes into this game, I think, in a big way. Schwartz is there. Limp, Anders Limpar, again, plays his role. And as, as Billy Joe said, like Dalian, Martin Dalian, um does his thing. Um, Brolin scores the goal. They could have had, I mean, they had a great chance at the very end as well. They had a terrific chance uh, for Brolin. Brolin practically had an open goal with a minute to, with, with about a minute to go, I think, was it? Um but he just couldn't. He, he just couldn't finish it. I think the Danes kind of got around him, and he, he just didn't. It didn't work out. But two nil wouldn't. Two nil would not have flattered them. Well, one of the other things that struck me watching this was, and and Billy, you've kind of mentioned this in one of the previous episodes. Like the Premier League is just on the horizon, okay? And if we were looking at the top eight sides in Euro twenty twenty. The vast majority of them would be playing in La Liga, Serie A, the Bundesliga, or the Premier League. You know, that like all the talent has been swept up by those four leagues. It's almost, and I'm back to the Q word here, it's so quaint to look at the squads for this European Championship and see the number that play in their own domestic leagues. The game has not even, you know, we talk about globalization. We haven't even had Europeization here. <laughs> Yeah, but I think as well, it's one of the, I think it's it's an interesting thing when you're looking back, even we've done this before with Italian 90 and you see leagues that, you know, I think that the Belgian league at that period in the early 90s were quite strong with Anderlecht. Class Ingerson was playing in, in for Standard Liège, wasn't he at the time, or one of the Belgian clubs? Yeah. Yeah, so there was a couple of strong Belgian clubs there and I always remember that and you, they, they, you know, it was great, you know, Belgium didn't qualify for this tournament, but you, you and there were, there were leagues like that where you had players, um, you know, you talk about Jonas Turn, like he was at Benfica at the time during during this during this period. And I know that's one of the the big leagues and all that, but uh, maybe maybe it's just I I don't know if I'd call it quaint, Kieran, but it's interesting all the same. <laughs> Not quaint. We did a tot up of the Swedish players, uh, I think, during the, during the last match. And it was like eight out of the 12 players that got game time that night went on to play, play, in, the, play in the Premier League. And like the Danes, if you, picked, if you picked the best players from the Danish team uh, in, in this match, I think they nearly all, like John Jensen was one of their better players, Arsenal. Uh, Schmeichel, again, is the class in the field, even though he's a goalkeeper. Um, he was already at United. Brian Lowdrup will end up, okay, not the Premier League, but he'll end up at Rangers. Um, so there's, you know, the, they're, they're... Fleming Pulse was think, at Dortmund at the remember, time. Oh, uh, well, he was, and you know what? He was actually, he was the most sort of energetic Danish presence playing up front, just running and running and running and trying, trying to make something happen. And to be fair, it's not that nothing happened for the Danes. It was about five minutes before halftime where they make a few chances and they put the Swedes on the back foot and you go, yeah, there's something about them here. But there's, a, there's one other thing I just want to make the point about Denmark, um, and it's something that I think has been remarked on by the players since. Going into that tournament, that Danish team, I suppose for obvious reasons, given that they hadn't actually qualified for the tournament in the first place, they were not a loved Danish team. Like, they weren't, a, they weren't really admired. I suppose not, it was not like only, the greatest team of all time in 86. Well, this is it. Like, they had the 84-86 team on their shoulders, and... The, the Danish public just didn't warn to the 92 team at all. And you can kind of see t- in this game, you can see why. They they were very workaday. They're just sort of, 
they're getting through it, they're making a few chances, but there's no other. It's like there's an awful like Brian Lodrup had a very poor game in this in this in this particular one. To be fair, it's, maybe he's coming he's coming back from a cruciate injury, maybe he's not right. But he ha, he's just not he, on a night when they really need someone like him just to do something, just to spark something. But all the energy is coming from the Swedes. Like you're looking at it going, yeah, if you were looking at it, you would say, yeah, Sweden are going to give England serious problems, probably get one over on them in the final game. But you're looking at Denmark going, this is exactly the game France need in their last game to get through. Because Denmark aren't going to do nothing here. Interesting that you highlight that too, at the depths that Denmark were at and the performance. It just is such a fascinating arc they go on in the tournament. But I guess I'll finish on this with each of you with a question. Kieran, you have something you want to kind of finish on. But Billy Joe, like, does it, does it, in this moment, does it stun you that that Danish team won the tournament? I mean, from that performance to be tournament winners, it seems to be an unreal arc to go on. I don't think so. I, I, I think, what is it, Greece 2004 or whatever that was is forever etched mm. in my mind. In, in tournament football, you can always, you can always um, catch a bit of lightning in a bottle. Uh, and, um, you know, at that stage, I suppose you, you're definitely thinking they're, they're not, they're not, favorites or they're not going to even qualify for the next round but in a tournament that's so small and we're kind of out of the habit of 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 operating on that basis now with 30 32 team tournaments and so many also runs in it you know when you go into it eight to eight teams like that all, all you need to do is get yourself to you know the whole idea of just another game gets you to a semi-final if things go your way you know in, in a game like football like that where it's low score and Penalties do end up being a factor in this tournament. So, hmm. Mick on Sweden, I'll say this and maybe get your final thoughts on that. I, this re- these rewatches have, have reminded me something. There was one other big takeaway from that tournament in my memory was the atmosphere and the buzz about Sweden. So when World Cup ninety four comes around, you know they're not a bolt from the blue. We had remembered them being this buzz. So I guess you know we we as Irish football fans remember Euro eighty eight so fondly, but you know. They didn't need, Ireland didn't even get out of the group. So I'd say a lot of Swedish football fans have some amazing memories of 1992. And definitely when you, when you put USA 94 with it, like it suddenly, it becomes a kind of like a sighter for what comes next, you know? Uh, they're, they're a very good team. They're so well put together. They have a great mix of sort of just solidity and reliability and but they have a bit of flair and they're able to they're able to play it a few different ways they can go long they can they can play the ball around i'd say they'd be good in a war they'd be good in an open game. they're just a very solid steady good team and suddenly they look like they might do something there's two other things struck my my eyes and ears uh i have to say um in the in before we before we leave this swamp of horribleness um, the Danish team, as we're saying, they're kind of in a, they're in a bit of, you could nearly say they're in a bit of transition, um, in lots of ways in terms of the personnel and stuff like that. What's also in transition is the haircuts. There are some absolutely wonderfully lustrous mullets in that Danish team mixing wonderfully. I mean, it's, I, to be honest with you, it's, it's a kind of an example in how you'd like the whole world to be, you know, race relations and all that. Mullets are mixing with steps. Steps that are really cut up high. They're there. Uh, floppy hair is there. Mullets. It's a wonderful thing to see. And having mentioned our Russian commentator friend at the start, again, I had our Russian commentator friend for this match. A different Russian commentator friend, obviously. But again, 
our our friend the old uh, the old pronunciation John Sievebeck remember John Sievebeck played for Manchester United for a little bit yeah John Sievebeck John Sievebeck became John Silverback <laughs> he's what an, he's an endangered animal uh, it's like is Diane Fossey on the bench <laughs> extraordinary stuff <laughs> Kieran, uh, last I'm word gonna, to you. I, I'm going to stay on the zoological theme because Michael has taken us there. I wonder, in all the great memories that these Swedish fans have of this tournament, will they remember Rabbit the Rabbit? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> tournament mascot extraordinaire. Oh, I, I have to say, I, I kind of think that maybe Rabbit the Rabbit might be a post-rave idea. To be honest with you, <laughs> let's just call the rabbit a rabbit. <laughs> it, it, yeah, it, let's do that. It, it's definitely the first tournament mascot to have a touch of ton, Donnie Darko about it. Maybe that's where the idea came from. I don't know. <laughs> uh, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll leave it on that. Uh, that's it for today. Tomorrow, football gets better. I think. I hope. Are you, I, sh- I are you sure? I'm, I'm genuinely... I'm getting some anxiety here about proceeding with this tournament. Like, this... Today felt like Italian 90 on a bad day. A bad day. The worst. All right, folks. Well, you've stayed with us, so why would you not keep this going? <laughs> From here, TJ5. Thanks, lads.